revealing the hidden secrets of the sea. This is Naked Oceans. Hello and welcome to a brand new series of Naked Oceans. To kick things off, we're diving into the science of whaling, past and present. We'll be asking, is there such a thing as sustainable whale hunting? And even if there is, are we likely to see an end to the current moratorium on commercial whaling? Hello, I'm Helen Scales, and with me, as always, is Sarah Caster-Perry. Hello! We'll also be looking into the past to find out how whaling logs from hundreds of years ago are opening up vital new insights into our changing climate. And we launch a new series of Critter of the Month with this long-distance migrant. I would have a satellite transmitter attached to my back, and I'd have a little camera attached to my back, so that I could share that entire journey with the whole world. Stay tuned to find out which marine expert that was and which critter they picked. If you want to get in touch, you can tweet us at Naked Oceans or email us. The address is nakedoceans at thenakedscientist.com. Supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation, this is Naked Oceans, on the web at nakedscientist.com slash oceans. Well, let's kick things off with a bit of news from the ocean world. Sarah, what have you got for us this month? I'm sure, Helen, you're quite concerned that if you want to buy fish in the supermarket, you want to choose something that is perhaps from a sustainable fishery. You know, the plight of fish stocks is always in our minds. And fish that are marked with the Marine Stewardship Council logo are designated as having come from sustainable fish stocks when you go and you buy them in the supermarket. But how can you be sure that the fish that has come from so-called sustainable fish stocks really has come from there? Well, a rather worrying study by Peter Marco at Clemson University in the States and his colleagues has shown that in the case of one species, the Chilean sea bass, not all of the samples tested actually came from the sustainable fishery region as designated by the MSC. The fish that's sold as Chilean sea bass is actually a species called the Patagonian toothfish, or Disosticus eleganoides. These fish can only receive the MSC stamp of approval if they were caught in the South Georgia Shag Rocks fishery, which is in the Southern Ocean close to Antarctica. So what Marco and his colleagues did was to set out to genetically test samples of Chilean sea bass bought in supermarkets to see if they really did come from this fishery by comparing their DNA to DNA results of a previous study that looked directly at fish caught in the South Georgia Shag Rocks fishery. The population of Patagonian toothfish in this area is actually relatively isolated by currents and weather, and the fish are very slow-growing, so they're actually quite genetically distinct. The team extracted DNA from the fish samples, amplified it, and cut it with restriction enzymes before running it on an agarose gel. And the digestion patterns of the samples were compared with the patterns found in the previous study. They found that 5 out of the 33 samples of the Patagonian toothfish didn't match the genetic profile of the South Georgia Shag Rocks fishery, and actually that 3 of the 33 samples were not Patagonian toothfish at all, but were actually tuna, mackerel and greenling. And the authors argue that this was due to mislabeling at some point in the chain between the fishermen and the supermarket. And obviously it wasn't due to genetic shifts in the population, which could, could possibly cause a, a difference like that, because they're so slow growing that it's unlikely that that would have happened in the time. And it's actually a really worrying finding because consumers may think that they're making sustainable choices Whereas, in fact, they're unknowingly creating a demand for uncertified fisheries, which goes against the whole point of MSC labelling, really. It's quite worrying. 
Um, yeah, it is. And I mean, we talked to the MSC in the last series, and, and one of the really important points of what they do is this ocean-to-plate chain, really knowing in detail how, where that fish has come from and, and all the points along the way. So I think this is going to be worrying for them as well. I'm sure this is not going to be good news. I'm sure it's something they're going to look into. Um, but then it also highlights the fact that it is, it's a really difficult thing to do. You know, it, there is such a long... We eat food from such a long way from where we consume it that all sorts of things can happen in between. And, and really what you end up with is something on your plate that you have very little idea of, of where it came from and, and what involved going into it. I also think the idea of the Patagonian toothfish is very interesting um, in that no one ever goes to the supermarket and buys Patagonian toothfish, but call it Chilean sea bass and suddenly it sounds really delicious. So I've got another story, unfortunately, with some slightly bad news about the ocean, but, uh, but there we go. Um, and it's about a very important, but not a very well-known group of ocean wanderers, the Thecosome pteropods, also known as sea butterflies, which again sounds quite a lot nicer, doesn't it? But um, this is a new study that paints a fairly gloomy future for them, and as a consequence, the rest of the pelagic food web. One of the major threats facing the oceans is acidification. With increasing levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, more of the gas is dissolving in the oceans, leading to a lowering of pH and a reduction in the concentration of carbonate ions. And that's going to make life really difficult for many marine species that use these ions to build calcium carbonate shells, including sea butterflies. Well, these guys are closely related to sea angels, which you might remember featured in our Christmas show last year. Um, these are the shellless mollusks that produced bad-tasting chemicals to defend themselves from attack. Well, the main difference with sea butterflies is that they protect themselves from a shell with a shell uh, made from a relatively unstable form of calcium carbonate called aragonite. Publishing in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B, the research team led by Steve Como from the CNRS-INSU Ocean Laboratory in Villefranche-sur-Mer in France studied two sea butterflies, Limacina helicina from the Arctic and Cresseus acicula from the Mediterranean. Well, they combined lab studies of sea butterfly growth rates at different concentrations of carbonate ions with models of future changes in ocean chemistry based on projections coming in from the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And they found that in large parts of the Arctic, Limacina helicina will probably be unable to form shells by the end of the century. Well, one question is, could Limacina live without a shell? And the answer, sadly, is probably not. While some sea butterfly larvae do seem to be able to survive a little bit, sometime without shells, Limacina would be left very vulnerable to attack by predators and it would also disrupt their buoyancy control. Because every day these guys undergo huge vertical migrations up and down the water column and it's thought they do that to avoid the attention of predators up in the surface waters during the day. Their shells are also really important for keeping all their soft body parts inside in place. So without their shells, looks like really not much of a future for these sea butterflies. And if they do disappear from the Arctic, it could spell disaster because they play a vital role in the food web of pelagic ecosystems and they form a staple food source for all sorts of animals, fish, birds, whales and so on. So if these models do play out then this will be yet another major shift in ocean ecosystems in a warmer, more acidic world. Yeah, that is pretty gloomy news. I suppose it's a, a quite a common theme amongst actually quite a lot of the really important sort of start of the food chain species, like krill are really going to suffer as well, and anything that makes a shell like 
phytoplankton and anything that uses this aragonite is going to really suffer with increased acidification. And obviously, because they are the start of so many food chains, it really does spell disaster. Very gloomy indeed. Well, if you want some more ocean news, you can check it out over at the main Naked Scientist podcast, where you can hear about how Aberdeen scientists have discovered a deep-dwelling bacterial species harbouring a potential new drug for sleeping sickness. And you can find that at thenakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. And you can also find an article by South African zoology researcher Caroline Bell on how having a barnacle glued to your back affects life for a muscle. And that's at thenakedscientist.com forward slash articles. You can find out more about this month's Naked Oceans news stories and many more at our website. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. From seagrass to sunfish, dugongs to diatoms, this is Naked Oceans. You're listening to Naked Oceans with Sarah Castaperi and me, Helen Scales. This month, we're diving into the issues surrounding whale hunting. Coming up, we'll find out how researchers are using records made by whaling ships hundreds of years ago to reconstruct past climate and how it could also help us look into the future. But first, we're going to stick to the present day to take a look at the latest situation with whale hunting. Back in 1986, a major landmark in ocean conservation took place when an international moratorium on commercial whaling was introduced and catch quotas for all the great whales were set at zero, which essentially means that whales would no longer be hunted for commercial purposes. But that isn't the end of the story, and there's still a lot of research and management of whales and whale hunting going on, as I found out when I hopped on my bike a few days ago. Well, Cambridge isn't necessarily the sort of place you would associate with the oceans, but I've hopped on my bike, cycled a couple of miles outside the city centre, and I've come to meet up with a group of people who are charged with looking after the biggest animals that roam the oceans. I've come to the headquarters of the IWC, the International Whaling Commission, and it looks like I'm in the right spot. In the window, there's a great big killer whale. An inflatable killer whale, not a real one, but... uh, Let's see who we can find inside. The IWC is a collection of governments that come together to conserve whale stocks and to manage whaling. I met up with Secretary of the IWC, Simon Brockington. It can trace its origins to back before the Second World War, but the convention that uh, empowers the IWC was signed in 1946. Um, and since that time, there's been really some major changes. Um, back in the early days, in the late 40s, there were, I, I believe, 15 contracting governments. All of them pursued whaling interests. And, of course, as we all know, as, as the decades have rolled by, public attitudes towards whaling have changed, and also the attitudes of the contracting governments themselves have changed. So what we have now is a very much larger commission. The total membership now is 89 contracting governments, and there is a huge diversity of views expressed amongst those governments. Uh, a number wish to continue commercial whaling. Uh, others wish to pursue whaling for, for nutritional purposes, for, for particularly for indigenous or uh, Aboriginal communities, uh, and many others wish to promote their conservation of whale stocks, um, and particularly for uses other than hunting, uh, to support industries such as whale watching. Joining us was Head of Science at IWC, Greg Donovan. Originally, real whale science began primarily actually in association with the whaling industry. Whatever one thinks about that, the sample sizes are very large, and in general quite a number of scientists took advantage of being on whaling boats to uh, look at anatomy, that kind of thing. And indeed, some of the famous... Biologists such as Scoresby were actually whaling captains who got interested in biology rather than the other way around. 
A major part of the IWC's work is conducting and coordinating whale research. They've found, for example, that for many whale species, numbers are recovering, thanks at least in part to the current moratorium on commercial whaling, which has been in place since the 1980s. Although there are still some populations that are in danger, and many mysteries remain. And it's that great unknown of those elusive animals that live their lives in the dark depths that poses a challenge to the IWC scientists who've taken on the task of working out what levels of whale hunting could theoretically be allowed without threatening the future of whale populations. It's really not a good idea to experiment in the wild. That's what happened with whale populations and that's one of the reasons they crashed. So rather than do real work, we use computer whales. And uh, I won't tell you how many millions of whale populations we've brought to extinction in our experimental work. But effectively what we do is we simulate whale populations and we build in huge amounts of uncertainty. For example, we say, what if the environment is changing in such a way that you have increased amounts of disease or so population might at random crash by half? We don't know it, but we have to test for that. And so what we have to do is come up with an approach which in this uncertainty still means that the population meets the conservation objectives, i.e. remains increasing or towards the level it's chosen, which is around about 72% of its carrying capacity or initial population size. The way the system works, and it is possible to do it, should you want to do it, is such that in the beginning, while you're learning more about the population, it's incredibly conservative. For example, if you had a population of around 10,000, at the beginning the catch limit that would be allowed would be less than 50. As the procedure learns more because you have more and more abundance estimates, then the catch limits might go up. When we do our simulations for sustainability, we're not saying this is whaling, we're saying this is all human-induced mortalities. The process that we use to allow us to determine what would be sustainable in terms of whaling also allows us for some of these other populations which are in serious trouble where the catch limit would be zero, you know that. You wouldn't allow whaling of any kind on it. But that doesn't mean that ship strikes aren't happening. It doesn't mean that bycatches in fishing gear aren't happening. From a population dynamics point of view, it doesn't matter what the motive behind the, the removal is. It's just a removal. If you do the right level of work and you're honest as a scientist and accept the uncertainty and you continue to monitor so you don't think we've got it right, you're always testing, then it's possible to do it. That doesn't mean you have to do it. It just means it's possible to do that. And it's not just about the whales. We talk about managing whales, but we aren't. We're managing humans. And so we need to know a lot about whales, but we also need to know a lot about humans if you want to do something sustainably. So a key component of any kind of system is that if you set rules, that those rules are obeyed and seem to be obeyed. I mean, one of the problems we know with fisheries and with whaling in the past is that people cheat. And so for a number of years, the Commission has been looking at different ways in which you could do that. Obvious ones are relatively straightforward, at least to say, if not to do, having international independent observers on board all vessels, that kind of thing. Science can help a great deal as well, should people want to go whaling again, because the genetic side of things and individual fingerprinting means that actually you can set up a system whereby any legal whale that could be on the market is in a register. And you can actually test in a pretty rigorous way where the products on the market are legal or not. Now, we're in the fortunate position, if you like, of being able to do that with whales because any catch limits would be relatively small. 
In principle, you can do that with fish, but clearly if you're catching millions of fish, then the whole process is considerably more complicated. So it is possible, um, or it should be possible, for us to develop systems which are essentially foolproof. Um, But that requires, A, a lot of money, and it requires a different part, which is the governments to decide if they do or don't want whaling to take place. And that's quite apart from the science. Probably the most controversial aspect of the IWC's work is whether or not the moratorium on commercial whaling will be lifted. And it's an issue that stirs up debate and leads to widespread accusations that the IWC is stuck between the two entrenched camps of pro versus anti-whaling nations. Here's IWC Secretary Simon Brockington. Certainly many observers do maintain that the IWC is somehow locked into a state of deadlock and is possibly even a powerless organisation. But I would suggest that's probably not the complete picture. And the IWC has all of the power that it had when it was formed back in 1946. The only thing that has changed is that the attitudes of the contracting governments towards whale hunting has changed. And this has certainly led to some quite deep divisions within the Commission. Now, to my mind, the IWC has responded to that really quite well. It's remained as the key organisation responsible for these matters, and each year it works with contracting governments of all viewpoints to try to understand their views and to work towards uh, common working wherever that's possible. So whilst it's true that divisions still remain amongst countries on the central issue of whaling, the Commission is more and more starting to look at other areas where it can come together. For example, uh, the number of whales caught in entanglement. In other words, uh, an accidental capture in fishing gear or ropes and buoys. And that's an area where a number of the contracting governments have been able to come together to allow the Commission to work. But with regard to the central issue of whaling, the powers are still there. Um, The moratorium, which is a pause in whale hunting, is still in effect. And the only thing that would change that is if there was a material change in the attitudes of the contracting governments. Uh, It's something that's written into the schedule of the International Convention for the Regulation of Whaling, and that would require a three-quarters majority of contracting governments to change that decision. Now, uh, there's nothing to suggest that that three-quarters majority is likely to be attained in the near future. Even with the moratorium still firmly in place there's no doubt that whaling does continue. The IWC permits a small amount of traditional whale hunting, and then there's the issue of so-called scientific whaling. Scientific whaling is kind of the colloquial expression. that Formerly within the, the Commission, it's called special permit whaling. And over the years, there have been various uh, uses of that, uh, ranging from taking one or two animals for museum specimens to taking relatively large numbers For example, the US took a relatively large number of of grey whales, which was to look at issues related to population dynamics. And it's not actually up to the IWC to decide how many whales can be caught for scientific purposes. Individual members can say yes, they do or they don't like it, and of course there's a lot of controversy about it. But in practice, we provide advice and the member government who's issuing the permit can take that advice or can leave it. It's a bit like all of the other aspects of the whaling issue. People like it to be black and white. So you'll have one group of people saying this is essential science and without it we won't understand anything. And you have another group of people who say this is commercial whaling in disguise. I'm not going to tell you it's one or the other because it's complicated. I think it's certainly not fair to characterise it as saying it has no scientific content. And it's, however we try and be objective scientists, it is coloured by partly by your cultural and historical background in the way in which you view what's needed, what isn't needed, what's essential, what isn't essential. It makes life being a whale biologist extremely complicated, but also makes it extremely interesting. 
And one way that commercial whaling continues today is by members of the IWC who choose to object to the global moratorium. And some say this is maybe something of a loophole in the convention. I wouldn't describe it as a loophole. I think this is a provision which is certainly exists within the IWC's uh, convention, but it's also um, a provision that exists in probably almost every convention. There has to be an opt-out clause, because otherwise countries could never ratify it. A country cannot uh, ratify a document that it will, will be bound by forever, because they cannot predict the changes that will be, be made in the future. I think the other point about the, the objection procedure is it's rarely used. I think the most obvious one at the moment is in the context of the moratorium. And in effect, that applies to Norway, who goes commercial whaling. Uh, the other country who does the same thing but with a reservation is Iceland. I think one can argue about the, the rights and wrongs, but primarily the, the fact is, under the convention, they are not breaking any rules. Well, there's no doubt that the IWC, as well as dealing with all the issues associated with modern-day whale hunting, are also making some extraordinary discoveries in the whale world. One study involves western grey whales, an extremely endangered population. There's thought to be only around 120 of them left, and they spend a lot of time around Sakhalin Island in the North Pacific. Working with an oil company operating in the area who want to minimise their impact on the whales, a research team, including IWC scientists, decided to try and find out more about where the whales move using satellite tags. We had all kinds of difficulties and problems and bad weather. Fortunately, on the last, literally the last afternoon, after we'd managed to get some extra funds to extend the project by a week, one animal was tagged, Flex. So Flex the whale became something of a celebrity, because with his tag in tow, he went on an adventure. Instead of staying in the Western Pacific, as the researchers expected, he zipped across the north and headed down the coast of North America towards an area where a genetically distinct population of eastern grey whales hang out. Ironically, it stopped working just literally 20 nautical miles offshore of the American expert Bruce Mate, who designed the tags and who put the tag on. <laughs> it was almost like it was a homing tag. So Flex revealed that western grey whales venture much further than was previously thought. Researchers have since checked on photo ID catalogues and found that several other whales from the western population have ventured as far as California and Mexico, which has major implications for the efforts that are being made to protect these whales. But there's still lots more to find out, and the exciting news is that a team of researchers has gone back out to tag more western grey whales, and they're in the field right now, and they're hoping to attach another 12 more tags. So we're going to keep in touch, see what they find out, and we'll let you know. You can also find out more about the IWC, International Whaling and Flex the Famous Whale by following links from our webpage. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Are there really plenty more fish in the sea? Find out with Naked Oceans on the web at nakedscientist.com slash oceans. This is Naked Oceans with Helen Scales and me, Sarah Caster-Perry. Now, when we want to study our changing climate and how things might change in the future, we need to look at what has happened in the past. Now, there are several methods that researchers use, from ice cores to tree rings. But what if we want to look at more recent changes from the last couple of hundred years or so? Most of the methods aren't accurate enough for recent history, and some of the most recent data, like the Keeling curve measuring CO2 levels, don't go back far enough. Well, now we have data from an unlikely source, the logs of whaling ships that used to set out to the Arctic waters in the 18th and 19th centuries. 
Diana Malloy-Thompson is from the Scott Polar Research Institute here in Cambridge, and I caught up with her to find out more about these whaling logs. But to start off with, why were these ships going out to catch whales in the first place? Diana explains. Well, if you think about it, there wasn't much in the way of oil. Uh, lighting was, was by tallow, which is the fat of animals. And they discovered, oh, many, many centuries ago, that oil from whales could be extremely valuable in all sorts of commodities, making uh, pharmaceuticals, making um, butter, margarines, if you like. Uh, and, of course, whaling began to provide uh, Britain, particularly, with, with, with um, the raw materials for a whole industry that was building within the um, Industrial Revolution. These extraordinary brave men, they went up to the Arctic, you know, in clothing that we wouldn't, we wouldn't even go for a Sunday walk in these days. No, no oil skins. And they braved their way up there, perhaps sometime starting in March and wouldn't come back till August. And they were extraordinarily good sailors, much to the uh, interest now because people didn't understand that these people were such good sailors. They had to be to get there and back, to navigate the way there and back, and highly disciplined. So it was a completely different way of, of sea life. I suppose now, if we considered people who go out whaling, it's kind of very much from an, an environmental point of view and from a conservation and animal lover point of view, the people that go out whaling are quite sort of looked down upon and frowned upon. But back then, was it kind of, they were really well respected. They were excellent seamen. They were going out, they were so brave to be going out in these dangerous conditions. And so was it something that was seen as a very brave, impressive thing to go and do? It, it was indeed. In, in their lo- within their local communities, in the community, say, of Whitby or Hull, the whole community would be involved in it. In fact, a boat would be owned maybe by 40, 50 people, uh, which would provide the, the pensions for the widows. And the whalers and their children and their families were, were, were part of the uh, major part of the community then. It could be a completely different attitude to animals now than we had then, of course. According to one of the great whalers of the time, Mr. William Scoresby, who became uh, indeed a clergyman in the end of the days and was a very religious man, he viewed the whales as being put there by God for the, for the good of man. Not to be cruel to, but to be used by, for, for man. So a completely different attitude. And, of course, the abundance of them was, was amazing. And they didn't understand that what they were doing uh, would diminish, diminish the population to below a critical mass where they couldn't, they couldn't uh, recreate again. So nowadays, of course, there's a different attitude altogether. We don't need, we don't have any need for whales apart from uh, the pleasure of eating their flesh, which is, which I must say, is absolutely delightful. It's wonderful. It's like, it's like veal, but it's not what, it's not what we do nowadays. So of course, it's frowned upon. Yeah, I mean, it's it is really interesting that we do have a very different attitude towards uh, whales than we do to anything else that lives in the oceans. You know, the fact that we had this moratorium introduced recently that we're a long way off doing something like that for even really endangered species like bluefin tuna. And actually, I think, um, apparently back in the 80s, it was around the time we were discovering um, that whales have these amazing songs and they, they, they're very intelligent. I think that brought us much closer to whales. So I think we, we do have this pretty bad notion of, of someone who goes out and, and hunts whales has to be a bad person, which, you know, it, it, I think it's just the same as anything else that lives in the sea, really, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Dinah's point about how the whalers were, you know, a real central part of the community. You know, these ships were owned by several families. It was 
a really important part of life back then. I think things have really changed. Obviously, that's not the view we have of people now. Um, but how, I suppose, how do we move from thinking about whalers and whaling and why they were going out to how on earth these logs that they were taking give us information about climate? Well, in their log, they wrote not just about the whales that they caught and who caught them and how they caught them and so forth. They also, of course, recorded their wind directions and the wind strengths, but they would also uh, record the weather conditions and they would, so we'd know roughly where they were. We did little matter of longitude, of course, which is a problem, but their latitude was was good. So we had a good idea roughly from the log as to where they were and, and how much ice was about them and what kind of ice was about them. Because they would describe it. They would say that there's um, streams of ice, thick ice, can't get through ice, ice flows, whatever it was they would describe. And if you're looking at that over a period of, in fact, about 100 years, you can begin to map it uh, roughly. And roughly is sufficient if you're looking at climate rather than weather. So why did they take such detailed logs? First of all, the wind directions and wind speed were absolutely vital it would be important for them because then they would know roughly what was happening to the weather conditions and what to expect, uh, say, further northeast or wherever it was, and which way they could go, whether they could go up to a bay that they knew from the previous year that they got whales in or where they couldn't go because they were square-rigged. Uh, so they, their manoeuvrability was limited. They couldn't get as close to the wind or anything like that. So they needed to know what the wind was doing. And as far as ice was concerned... They needed. They would put that down because they could see if there was a stream of ice coming down from the north. They could interpret enough as to what might be happening up further north of them, for example. Perhaps what was more important at the time, um, not so much about the content, but the fact that they actually had to do it or did it, the government devised a scheme of what they called bounty in order to encourage the whaling industry. The whaling industry became very important, as I say, the commodities were important uh, to industry. So they had to encourage it. And to encourage it, they offered so many, for example, at the height of it, it was 40 shillings per tonne at the tonnage of, of a boat. A boat might be anything from 300 to 500 tonnes. And the idea was that that bounty would um, help to reinforce the hulls so they could get through the ice. But when they came back to their home base, they had to show their log in order to receive their bounty. Now, it wasn't based on the number of fish that they caught. It was simply based on the fact that they had a log that conformed to what was required. So much like the farming subsidies we have today, the government actually supported the whaling industry But if the whalers had to fill in their logs to get that bounty, you'd perhaps think that they may not be the most accurate guide to climate if they're just filling them in in order to collect the bounty. So how do researchers like Dinah make sure the log accounts of wind and ice and weather are accurate? Of course, you can never be sure of anything like that. But that was the most authentic uh, information that you were going, going to have. Now, there is a thing uh, that you can do, and that's to validate the information, which, in fact, is what I was actually interested in doing. And if you get two boats together, uh, roughly in the same area, that see each other. So there'll be something in the log that said, saw resolution from Whitby today. If you've got the resolution log, you can go there, and it may say, saw bounty from Hull today. Then you know the two boats have seen each other. So then you begin to compare what they have written in their logs. 
and if they're completely different, you begin to get, hmm, I wonder. But in fact, they turn out to be sufficiently similar to say, yes, they are all doing the same thing. And also the terms that they used. When you convert the terms into, say, a numeric value, you find that they are all saying, using the same terms when they see the same state of water, same state of wind. So, in fact, um, I've finished my thesis on this very issue about validating the data so that we can know what they say is sufficiently good uh, to use for solid data. And actually some even cooler cross-referencing that Dinah managed to do involved the readings in the logs about the state of the sky. In order to figure out where they were, the whalers would take sextant readings using, using the sun. But if they couldn't see the sun, they'd write something in the log like sun obscured. And Dinah found there was actually a dip around 1816 where a lot of records contained the words sun obscured or sun obscure. So she went off to her history books and found that they coincided with the year without a summer, which was what 1816 was known as because it was caused by the 1815 eruption of the Tambora volcano, spewing these huge amounts of ash into the air and affecting world climate. So the records are actually pretty accurate. Okay, so how do we use these records once they've been found? My role, really, I'm not, I'm not a meteorologist, but I, my role, really, is to give back to the meteorologists and the climatologists, really, data that they can then use and that they can extrapolate uh, back, backwards or forwards in their climate models, um, to which will begin to show us the movement of weather systems, things like the North Atlantic Oscillation, which is quite important to us, uh, which we think oscillates every 12 years, um, but we haven't got much data on that. But this will certainly bring uh, an awful lot more uh, data on, on the periodicity of, of that. And I say that's, that's what I'm, I'm trying to do, is to prepare uh, uh, data which is understandable in its era, it's, that its um, validity is understood. And there's a lot more to be done. We have a lot, we have a lot more uh, data to be found. Um, we've just set up a new project, which is being funded by Leverhulme, which is called ArcDoc. And it is going, we're going to try to find as many logs as possible, particularly in the Arctic. And I'm hoping to you know, extend the research so that we can not just get British whaling logs, but there's Norwegians, there's Dutch, there's Danish. Uh, there's, of course, a lot of American ones. Uh, and digit, um, get the images of them and digitise them and extract the data so that we will have a very large database of information uh, available to the mathematicians. These are terribly important when we are looking at our climate because our, all our climate is, our ideas are extrapolated from our earlier records. And white ice cores are interesting. They don't give us the immediate information that we, that we want, immediate information for the last few hundred, 300 years. So certainly the research will certainly last my lifetime <laughs> and more. So definitely more work to be done. But I think it's really interesting that we can get some quite unexpected information from something like whaling and also more of an insight into the lives of the men doing it too. That was Dinah Malloy-Thompson telling us about how she's been uncovering a treasure trove of information about the climate hidden away in the whaling logs from hundreds of years ago. And if you want to carry on with the whale theme this month, check out my latest Naked Science scrapbook video, which is all about why whales don't get the bends when divers can. Although I'll let you in a little secret, sometimes they actually do, and it's actually because of human intervention. That's all at thenakedscientist.com forward slash scrapbook. 
Well, time's nearly up for this episode of Naked Oceans. But first, let's catch up with another marine expert and ask them if they were a species in the ocean, which one would they be and why? Here's our Critter of the Month. My name is Jay Nichols, and I'm a marine biologist and a research associate at the California Academy of Sciences. And if I was going to be a, a marine animal, I would be a loggerhead sea turtle. And not just any loggerhead sea turtle, but a North Pacific loggerhead sea turtle. And I would be a loggerhead sea turtle who is swimming from the coast of Mexico home to Japan. And I would have a satellite transmitter attached to my back, and I'd have a little camera attached to my back so that I could share that entire journey with the whole world and so that people could see what was going on out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. They could see what was going on with the life out there. They could see what's going on with the plastic out there, with the fishing activities, and they could just share the entire journey home from Mexico to Japan. That was Wallace J. Nichols, research associate at the California Academy of Sciences, with a very specific critter of the month, a loggerhead sea turtle making its way home to Japan on a journey highlighting all of the issues of the ocean. You'll find lots more marine critters at our website. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. That's it for Naked Oceans this month. A big thank you to Simon Brockington, Greg Donovan, Dinah Malloy-Thompson and Wallace J. Nichols. Until next time, we'd love to hear from you, so keep in touch with us. We're on Twitter, at Naked Oceans. You can send us an email. The address is nakedoceans at thenakedscientists.com and you'll find info on this month's show and all the others at thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Naked Oceans is produced by the Naked Scientists and supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation. For more information, look them up online at saveourseas.com.